me personally, as your friend, and people who look like me have never had the luxury of safety. And I can point you to incidents, but I think that's actually unhelpful because I need you to hear that I'm in pain. And I don't need a logical, biological explanation of how pain works. And if you just take an Advil, it won't work anymore. And if you put it in a cast, it'll fix. I need you to limit with me. And that's one of the things that America does not do well, right? When we, when we have a problem, we go into how do I can fix it? Hi, my name is Josh Chambers. And I'm Leif Parton. And welcome to How Humans Change. Now, we usually interview someone who's undergone some kind of change and we get the backstory. However, we're going to change things up a little bit. And once in a while, we want to speak with someone who is an expert on a specific topic and analyze that change from a meta level. Because there are areas that aren't subjective. They need to be changed. Culture needs to move in a specific direction. And one of those areas is racism. Now, this has been a topic that's been on my mind for quite some time as it pertains to discussing this on how humans change, and it was accelerated by the recent events in Charlottesville. So I reached out to a friend, Jason Brooks, and Jason is one of the smartest men that I know. Now, I'll spare the full bio because Jason gives it. He has a very unique story. He's black, and he grew up in a pretty tough part of L.A. His dad was a police officer, and fast forward, he is Harvard-educated, speaks four languages, I think four. He is married to a white woman, and as an educator, he has spent quite a bit of time thinking about how to instill virtues and morals into kids that provide systemic-level changes for culture as they grow up. Obviously, one of those topics is racism, and having both taught in Brooklyn and L.A. has seen firsthand what that looks like in students' lives and how that plays itself out. So we discussed quite a few things. We talked about this concept called a cognitive tax, which essentially means that you have to overthink all of your social interactions and how exhausting that is over time. If you've ever spent any time, and I don't mean to equivocate racism and experiencing racism with something like a cross-cultural experience, but if you've ever been in an environment that's completely foreign to you, like a different culture, a different country, and you Every little interaction you have, you have to think about, you know how exhausting that can be. Well, imagine doing that every single day of your life. If you are not a subscriber, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you are a subscriber, please rate us five stars on iTunes. Or if you use Overcast FM, which is my podcast player of choice, go ahead and star this episode. Also, please consider sharing this on social media. I know we get that request a lot. But I think that this conversation in particular merits other people hearing it. Our podcast is small. I don't mean to be arrogant to suggest that this conversation could change the world, but I think conversations like this could. So if you find yourself wondering what you can do to begin to combat racism, to heal some of these wounds, again, I say this with all humility, sharing a podcast episode is very small, but it is something. So consider getting more actively involved. It's something I'm figuring out now with my family. But this might be something that you can share, and I think we can all learn from Jason, and he has such incredible insight that it is worth other people hearing. All right, without further ado, here is Jason Brooks. Welcome to How Humans Change, Jason. Thanks. Appreciate you having me. This is great. Why don't you uh, tell us about yourself? Give us your bio. It's a pretty fantastic bio, so don't, don't hold back. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I grew up in L.A., in Watts, um, and then uh, was homeschooled for a while and then went to an all-boys boarding school, sort of 
uh, Harry Potter-esque. And then from there, went to university in Texas. And then um, I graduated with a degree in Spanish and American history and a minor in Mandarin Chinese. And then I went to uh, teach at an all-boys school in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I taught there for eight years. Uh, and then uh, they wanted to start a Chinese program, and I'd studied enough Chinese to get myself in trouble, but not enough to actually be mm. good. So then <laughs> I took a sabbatical and then went to China for two and a half years and did a master's in teaching Chinese as, as a second language, uh, and then came back and started the Chinese program at that school. And then I didn't start the program. I sort of helped develop that program. Um, yeah. The other guys sort of started it. Um, and then uh, I was there for another four or five years, and then realized there's sort of a gap in my education, and then went back to uh, grad school at Harvard, um, and then studied teaching and learning, and really focused on neurolinguistics and boys, and how to sort of build capacity when they're learning uh, other languages. And then mm. after that, um, applied to some PhD programs and got into a few, and then realized uh, that, you know, sort of halfway through the program, I, I loved sort of education, but at that point, it was a selfish pursuit, right? It was really about me and having three big fancy letters behind my name, but I didn't really have any meaningful relationships with students or teachers, and that sort of felt like I was mortgaging my soul for uh -huh. you know, those three letters. And That's then, why I never got a PhD. And then from there, I... Uh, you know, my sisters were living in New York at the time, and then I wanted, I was like, I need to be close to them, because I'd, I'd gone to a boarding school, and I hadn't really lived with them since I was 14. Wow. Uh, so I moved to New York and then taught at a hard-charging charter school for three years there and learned a ton. Uh, and then my, I met my wife in New York as well, and then uh, she had some health problems. She got sick, so then sort of forced our family to move back to L.A., where we're, we're both from, and then... Now, I started as the Dean of Students and Faculty at uh, the school I'm at now, and then now my current position is the head of the upper school. So, uh, That's awesome. So I'm in charge of the academic and the discipline and the sort of scope and sequence and the vision for, for the school. So uh, education is a big part of my life, but I'm like a hyper-curious dude, right? So mm -hmm. I really I – know I know that I personally uh, do better when I'm consuming a ton of – a ton of – uh, information and then making connections between that information to see how sort of big patterns work. So mm -hmm. my, my wife always gives me a hard time because I listen to you know, 56 podcasts all at triple speed. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you do all your podcasts like super fast? What's your speed? 125? No, 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 no like 2.1. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's legit. Oh, yeah. wow. Have you <laughs> ever... Have you ever used Overcast, the app Overcast? Dude, That's what I, I that, use. That is my jam. <laughs> you can customize it. Yes. You can customize it. It takes out all the pauses. It maximizes the, yes. the trouble, right? Yeah. You, you can Love get it. one. <laughs> that really helps. It's great. There's some podcasts, though, where I feel like if I remove the pauses, it kills all the timing and the comedic, especially the comedic timing, but also just like the, like when you hear someone pause and have to think for a while, it adds to it. Do you, you're just like, ah, screw that. I'm going to blow right through it. I'm just strip mining it for information. <laughs> just strip mining it for like, I'm just like big oil. Just like, like <laughs> big oil. I'm just, just like big oil of academics. Oh my gosh. Give me your point. Let me oh, learn a few, few words. 
That's great. Um, well, we are today discussing race in America, which is a pretty light topic. <laughs> so it should be a fairly easy conversation. Yeah. I had emailed you for everyone listening because you and I used to do re- breakfasts regularly in Brooklyn and mm-hmm. had a number of meaningful conversations there. And in light of the last year in particular for a lot of Americans starting to wake up to the idea that racism exists yeah. or it's worse than they thought or some there's somewhere on that spectrum and looking to move to take action to change things in their local community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd emailed Jason and just said, hey, you're an incredibly smart person. <clears throat> thought a lot about this. Can we have a conversation about it? Uh, and you graciously said yes. So for people listening, why don't you give us a little snapshot of life growing up, where you've experienced racism, and give us some context also of your uh, relationships, your wife, you, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, because of you know the way that this country in particular is constructed, I have to deal with and, and walk what feels like a, a minefield of race every day. Uh, so there's no lack of stories. Um, but my wife is a beautiful, intelligent, super capable white woman. Um, just talking within the constructs of America, right? So she has, she's of European descent. Um, and then another, you know, I have, I have a mom and four sisters and a brother and a huge family, uh, African-Americans. Uh, but I think the other relationship that's important especially when talking about sort of systemic um, injustice and racism is that my dad was a cop in LA for 25 years, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, most recently when people talk about Blue Lives Matter versus Black Lives Matter or um, the opioid crisis or the war on drugs, like I've, I have uh, what I'd like to consider a unique perspective given that, you know, yeah. when I'm walking around, the cops don't know I'm black, that my dad is a cop. Right. Uh, so like uh, when I'm interacting with cops, they just see what they see and they don't know the backstory. But then at home, you know, sort of getting my dad's perspective is always helpful. Um, yeah. And sort of balancing that out. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean. You were telling us an amazing story. Yeah. When we started having this conversation about um, just talking to your mother-in-law. Why don't you tell us a little about that? I was talking to her about a time where, you know, walking down the street, I, I'd seen, you know, I was dressed not in a proper school attire, didn't have my bow tie on, didn't have everything, and had a hoodie on, and sort of had to walk um, in front of a parent of a student and say, like, hey, I'm Mr. Brooks, I'm your parent, your student's uh, favorite teacher, right? And mm-hmm. having to go in front of her, um, and she was terrified, like terrified that a muscular black guy in a hoodie was, like, stopping her. The, the mom? The mom, the, yeah. The mom, because for people who can't see, Jason, you're a CrossFit junkie. You're a fairly muscular guy. I mean, I mean, like Leaf and I are a little more muscular, but you're right. pretty <laughs> muscular. Doing the best you can. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, you, yeah. Can. It's just DNA, probably. But you're a pretty big guy. Yeah. Um, but I, so, I think I think the point that really struck with stuck with me was that she, even after she knew that it was me and that she felt safe and that we had a pre-existing relationship that had lasted for three or four years. Just the, just the mental model of a black dude in a hoodie who sang high, uh, was terrifying. Right. And like, I understand that it's not just on the race dynamic. There's, there's 
you know, gender dynamics, there's history there, there's a ton of stuff, but it's that calculation every day that I have to go through of asking myself, what was that about? Right. So like every time I buy something, every time I try to return a pair of pants, right. Mm -hmm. It's a fist fight for my dignity, right. Where it's like, when I show up with a pair of pants that didn't fit, the question is always like, why didn't they fit? Well, do you have a receipt? Yeah. And there's this, this, this litany of questions that sort of, um, mm. wrestle, wrestle for my dignity. So, so as in my new role, right, I'm the headmaster, I'm the, in, you know, sort of in charge of a division of the school. Um, mm. but often throughout my career, right. When, when students show up to a Chinese class or, uh, looking for stuff, people are surprised that I'm the Chinese teacher. Right. Um, and there, there, that there's some pain in that and there's some history in that. And obviously I don't look like on the outside, I'd be able to speak Chinese. But um, mm. again, it's going back to that idea of, you know, what was that about? Every interaction is charged with the, the sort of hyper thinking of, you know, what was that about? Do you think yeah. that that's like, do you ever confront it? I know you're, you're sidetracking you off a story or a set of stories, but when people give you that funny look, is it this weird thing where you're like, well, are they just giving me a funny look because they gave me a funny look? Is it because I'm black? Is it because I'm a guy? Is it something else? Like, are you, yeah. Is that what you're talking about? You always have to be wondering and curious about the funny looks. Exactly, right? So, and that's a really important distinction to make. This is what W.D. Boyce talks about, talks about in The Souls of Black Folks, right? Where um, I think it's unhelpful to create this dynamic of crazy racist white people who are just throwing N-bombs all the time and just mowing people down. Like, that's not really where we are. Mm. Um, but there's a an empirical cognitive tax on somebody, whether it's a woman, a trans person, black person, anybody who has to consider every interaction and the history and the backstory behind that interaction. It's a really um, interesting phrase, a cognitive that, tax. So, yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's wearing, it's wearing, right. Like that. Yeah. When you have to, like I said, in every single interaction, right. It's a fist fight for a dignity. I'd prefer never to say that I went to Harvard, but often I have to play that card just to just to have a seat at the table. Well, and we've also talked about in the past that you have to you have to um, download and memorize a large like a like a catalog, yeah, like a catalog of white pop culture yeah, in order right. to be able to and just fit in and feel like you are not being judged. Don't don't put words in your mouth. Whereas the inverse obviously isn't true. That's White right. culture doesn't necessarily have to, there's no requirements to understand popular black culture. And you're, so you're not only having to face that in, in daily interactions, but you've got this like stuff you have to memorize, right? That's right. Right. So like people talk about, a lot of people hear this term code switching, right? Where I, I talk a certain way to different folks, right? Everybody does that to some extent. Uh, but what you find, and this is what James Baldwin talks about in several of his essays, uh, Fire on the Inside being one of them, where he talks about just to survive, just to not get killed in this country, just to not, just to, just to go to work, right? We see a guy on the side of the road panhandling, and like the first instinct is say, hey, go get a job. If that guy go, goes to get a job, he has to understand Friends references. He's got to understand Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He's got to understand Metallica, right? When the ambient yeah. music is playing, Welcome to the Jungle, right? Like he's got to understand so many references because the default cultural thing in this country is whiteness, right? Um, and yeah. often um, his white 
compatriots and counterparts won't know much, if anything at all, about his food, his culture, his home, what he likes to do. Yeah. Because so much of the default is on white, and and I think it's it's a it's important to clarify. I don't I don't ever find it helpful in these sort of conversations to accuse, but just to identify, right? Yeah. Because if we're if we're actually going to get our way out of this problem, we've got to identify it and then move forward. So I, I just want to be careful that when I'm saying these things, it's not. I'm just not very interested in accusing, but incredibly yeah. interested in reconciling. Yeah, great. Well, let's. I want to follow up on that uh, in a little bit, but why don't you tell us some of the experiences you've seen in being a teacher where you've, I'm sure, experienced and seen uh, awful examples of racism, but also probably or hopefully seen examples of redemption, restoration, and hope. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many countless um, meetings that you're sitting in where groups of teachers are deciding, literally deciding the fates of, of students, right? Where you, you get into this, this AP track or this IB track or this accelerated class or, you know, maybe that kid needs to do that again. Or I'm not, I'm not that confident that kid got that material. And we know we can measure that, you know, if you're not achieving at a high level in math or science or English, mm -hmm. I mean, these things affect every aspect of your life, most notably your earning potential. Um, and there have been times where I have to fight for a kid because the stakes are too high not to... Um, Sort of. What does that conversation look like, Jason? Is it, hey, there's a kid who you feel like he's getting the short end of the stick because he's got brown skin? or And, and then if that's the case, how do you actually have that conversation? Is it a conversation with Caucasian teachers? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, I, I, a lot of it are systems, right? So when you think of the grading system in general, just like zoom out super meta, mm -hmm. uh, it's almost there's a tension between um, right. I often talk about the tension between like, I want my personal education to play in the market, right? When I put it on a resume, I want my degrees to have a compelling, uh, sense in the market, but I also want to live in a world where everybody's educated, certainly past the threshold of poverty and sort of the decisions that come with poverty and sort of just all out anarchy. Right. But I don't want everybody to be educated well enough that now my degrees are worthless. So we're living at the nexus of that tension. But um, in terms of grades and what that looks like and how grades are assigned, you find both anecdotally and nationally, uh, black boys and black girls in particular are just penalized uh, for behavior um, mm. or for a, per a perceived threat uh, that is not always equitable with their white counterparts. And that's disturbing, right? And we, we have people at the front of the classrooms who are doing their absolute best, who are, who are staying up till three o'clock in the morning every other night and, and giving everything they have, um, but are still fallible folks and, and subject to the systemic injustice that our country uh, still has. You mentioned systemic a few times, and I, I want to talk about that. And um, we were talking the other day, just uh, like this, this idea of what, first of all, what racism is, yeah, uh, yeah. and then what systemic racism is, uh, because it, it's like this, um, practically speaking, going up to someone and saying, we're all racists, is immediately putting them in this posture where they have to defend themselves, 
That's right. They're immediately, human nature is to analyze oneself. uh, And depending on how maybe empathetic or open-minded you are, you might spend more time analyzing yourself than others. But regardless, you very quickly end up in a defensive posture because you immediately want to eschew the idea that you're a racist. So it's not so helpful even as people begin. I mean, there's something beautiful about people saying, look, I'm part of the problem. But in, in conversation with others, this idea that saying I'm a racist or we're all racists doesn't seem to be super productive. And I'm wondering if we could talk about systemic racism and where maybe there's an opportunity there for someone who is a good person who isn't looking to be a racist, but maybe inadvertently is participating in a system where maybe the conversation can shift and it's not, we're all racists to, there's some really broken systems here that are mm-hmm. really problematic for people mm-hmm. of color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think it's helpful just to zoom out and understand that uh, one of the critiques of America is that we simplify, oversimplify, grossly oversimplify incredibly complex problems, right? So you hear rhetoric that says, you know, if we could just get Obama out of the White House, if we could just get Trump out of the White House, if we could just get, if we just build a wall, everything would be fine, right? And we simplify these things down. Um, and we, we sort of do that with race, right? If we could just get rid of the racist, everything would be fine. Uh, and we ignore uh, systems, right? And I think it's helpful when we're having these super complex uh, conversations to define the terms, right? Um, I, like, I would personally define uh, racism and a racist as the intersection of, of one, prejudice, two, power, and three, history and context. Right. So um, you hear things sort of tossed around or if that's reverse racism or this and that. Uh, everybody can be prejudiced. Right. Prejudice is, is, is uh, common good. Anybody can be prejudiced on almost any um, metric. Uh, but often people don't have the accompanying power. And then if you think about the history of this country and the context, that's the third piece that sort of makes the triumvirate of what I would define as a racist. So talk about the last one, because and let me repeat that back to you. Prejudice, that's the obvious one. That's the, oh man, that, that group of people does things differently and that's wrong. That's right. Then there's power, which is, I have the power to, to, to affect their lives yeah, for better or for worse. Exactly. And then how does history play into that? Right, so um, history and context play into it because you, through your parents, school, education, church, synagogue, et cetera, uh, download a certain set of values, right? Download a certain way of, a certain sense of the way things should be, right? Mm-hmm. And that informs the way you wield that power, right? Uh, so if, if, to move it off race for a second, if, if people should work hard for their money, right? If people should go out and get a job, yeah. well, when you, ha- when you have the prejudice against the person who's asking you for your hard-earned money, and you have the power whether or not to give that person the money, well, then because of this history and context that says people should, right, that informs that decision. So, so that last piece of how things should be is what I would have Got it. So it's, it's like context. the, it's the, when you say in history too, it's the culture that we are all, right. we all grow right. up in without and even that, half the time realizing it. And exactly. And that's, that's the hardest part from my perspective yeah. of this whole conversation, because when you talk yes. about the way things should be, no one notices it by default because it's the way it should be, right? Like I don't notice 
that my books on my shelf are the way they are because that's just the way they should be. I yeah. notice things that are out of line, right? So when, when trying to talk to people about, hey, like racism is a real thing, prejudice is a real thing, like, no, this is the way it should be. This is the only way I've ever seen it. Well, I think that's so so interesting because if this this construct you're providing is basically going back to what I was saying earlier, we are only talking about prejudice right now, aren't we? Mm-hmm. That's where the conversation is nationally right now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, and I think I think that's where you get into um, when, when you when you don't when you exclude history and context. That's that's when you can get a well-intentioned person saying. And engaging in the whataboutism, right? That's when you get get the idea of well, all lives matter. If Black lives matter, well, then all lives matter, right? Why don't you black... Why don't you talk about that a little bit more? How How does that specifically as a as an African American man with a dad who's a cop, and this whole all lives matter, Black lives matter, Blue lives matter, whataboutism? Just tell people why that's not helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think whataboutism. Uh, you just wouldn't do it in your relationships, right? You wouldn't if you if your if your partner came to you and said, "Hey, uh, you haven't done the dishes in two weeks." You wouldn't say, "Well, what about the laundry I just folded?" Right? That person is bringing to you a specific hurt, a specific issue, and to what about that person? Uh, not only is it painful, but it just it doesn't. It's not. It it doesn't help move the ball forward, right? If I if I if I t- came to you and said, "Hey, my ankle's sore. Can you help me, doc?" And the doc said, "Hey, what about you? Got you got great hips, man. Like you like no hip replacement in your future. Yeah. Like your whole body matters. Your whole body matters. Yeah. You're gonna be good. Like you know, if yeah. you just use that left a little bit and walk on your hands, you'll be fine. Like it's it's ignoring it's ignoring mm-hmm. the pain that I'm bringing to the surface, right? Because when you're saying Black Lives Matter, of course White Lives Matter, but and and all lives matter, but all lives can't matter until Black lives matter, right? So and 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 we're not and this is, Michael Shea does a great bit on this, right? We're not talking about uh, should be more or less than or it just matter. Just just let's just get them on the table and say, yeah, uh, they matter, right? We're not right. It, it, so thinking about this, this might be also where history and context comes in because if you bring it down to that granular individual level. Any relationship that's about winning is a is gonna end quickly. Yeah. So right. if you're if you're trying to argue with your wife or roommate or whoever, and the point of your your point is I want to win, well, it's over before it started. That's right. But something happens, and I think most people, a lot of people, intuitively understand that. But when you start getting into culture, context, history, large swaths of people behaving a certain way, that idea of winning becomes more and more present but more and more inconspicuous at the same time, doesn't it? Where it's like, it's, it, now it's about, why well, can't rec- I'm not allowed to recognize that Black Lives Matter yeah. because justice is scarce and I got to win. I have to win. White yeah. has to win or blue has to win or all has to win. No, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, and I think this, is, this has been one of the haunting thoughts that goes past this country's founding, goes all the way back to Rome, but Thomas Jefferson says it really eloquently when he says, uh, well, he's talking about race, or he's talking about slavery, right? And this is a man who famously had, uh, you know, scores of relationships with, it, with the people he owned, with the women he owned. Uh, and he says, you know, you know, we had the wolf by the ear. We can neither, neither let the wolf slavery go. Uh, we can't either hold him 
or safely let him go. You know, justice is on one side of the scale and self-preservation is on the other, right? So when we talk about, um, and this is Thomas Jefferson, right? This is like mm -hmm. one of our founding fathers. This is like Monticello, this is UVA, right? This is Charlottesville, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Um, so when we talk about, you know, they were just kind of doing the best for their time and they didn't really know any better, da da da. like that's not true. That's not true. This guy's writing this to a buddy in 1820 yeah. saying like, hey, I know this is messed up and I don't really know a way out. And if you frame it on winning, right, winning an argument, like, sure, you can win the argument, but you will lose the relationship. And yeah. like what, what I'm saying when I say Black Lives Matter or, hey, brother, sister, listen to me, right? Mm -hmm. I'm saying like I'm hurt and there's history and context that is hurt. And while this one specific um, incident Right, of a black, unarmed black man getting shot. Sure, you can justify he was high, he didn't have a shirt on, he reached, he didn't comply. But what I'm saying and asking you to listen is say like, there are there are 400 years, 500 years in this country yeah. where a black body has not been safe, and I feel I don't feel safe. Right, man, I don't. There's right, like 30. Like, there's 30 things I want to ask you out of this. Am, am I cutting you off? Do you want to finish? Well, I just want I just want to like highlight and say to the history, the context that like. Me, me personally, as your friend, and people who look like me have never had the luxury of safety. And I can point you to incidents, but I think that's actually unhelpful because I need you to hear that I'm in pain. And I don't need a logical, biological explanation of how pain works. And if you just take an Advil, it won't work anymore. And if you put it in a cast, it'll fix. I need you to limit with me. And that's one of the things that America does not do well, right? When we, when we have a problem, we go into how do I can fix it? Right. And this is reflected in our games. Right. We, we like, just understand American history. We're a country that revolted. Revolutions don't work. Look around our country. Look around the world. Right. Turkey didn't work. Syria's not working. Right. The, the Arab Spring, like those revolutions got a lot of people who revolted, killed. Mm -hmm. We're one of the few revolutions that worked. And then we reinforce that that atypical narrative in the games we play. Right. So we're like, hey, I'm down, down four, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded. You know what? I'm going to hit a home run. Yeah. Right? You're not supposed to win that game. Halftime down by three, I'm going to shoot a half-court shot. I'm going to win, right? <laughs> Hail Mary in football, like you're down, you've played poor the whole game, but, you know, I got one second on the clock. Let me just throw this thing up, baby, right? So we reflect that that rev winning a revolution in our games, and again, going back to the point earlier, that just becomes the way things should be, mm -hmm. right? And But when you play out the arc of injustice, that's not everybody's experience, so yeah. to say, hey, you should just throw a Hail Mary and win every time, that's not you, – you wouldn't ask a football team to win like that. So why would you ask a group of people? Well, it also seems like one of the things I'm hearing in that, and I've, I've thought about this as well, is people seem to want to talk about who's – they don't want to talk about it, but it seems like embedded in this is this idea of who's hurting more. Mm-hmm. Because when you say Black Lives Matter and the response is, well, all lives matter or blue yeah. lives matter, yeah. the, let's go with blue lives matter because that's a little more specific. Blue lives matter. Let's, I, man, I'm probably going to get in hot water here, but in its best form, let's say it's because your dad is a cop or your husband or your wife is a cop and you have experienced pain and trauma as a result of that. So you've got some own wounds, your own wounds, and you're hurt. So you're coming back with, essentially, my pain is more painful than your pain. That's what that's what I'm hearing when that response. Can you is it? What do you think of that? 
Is that wrong? Am I mishearing that? Yeah, I think so. When you get into the suffering Olympics, right? Everybody's trying to win their event, and it goes yeah. it goes back to this idea of you know if you're trying to win the argument, right? Like mm-hmm. when I say this hurts, I need you to not say anything and say tell me more, and I need you to tear up a little bit and say like, mm-hmm. hey, I can totally see how that hurts. And then when you come to me later and say, I fear, right? And this, I, this is my mom, my, my, I, this is my house, right? Like when we're talking about blue lives, I understand when every time for 25 years, my dad left the house, like there's, there's a higher than likely chance he may not come home, right? But those are two different conversations. And to bring both of those pains and both of those hurts into the same conversation and try to process it at the same time, we're just going to shoot past each other, right? Do you walk away when someone comes back with that now, Jason, or do you try and pull some relational jujitsu and actually re-engage in a different angle? Yeah, I mean, it, it really it really depends, right? So, um, in this in this current political climate, self climate, uh, self care is really really huge for me, mm-hmm. and taking care and not fighting every battle. Um, yeah. So sometimes I'll engage, and other times I just have to uh, disengage just out of, out of self-preservation but um, leaf and i've I've been having conversations lately about self-care in the context of how you treat other people we were discussing the other day how just a better way to live when someone comes to you and says i'm hurting right now it's just inarguably better to be like i'm sorry tell me about that like let's say your friend did something stupid you know it's stupid they may or may not yet know it's stupid Mm. but they've come to you and said in, in so many words, I'm dealing with the emotional repercussions of having done something stupid. And most of us, my first reaction still is, well, that was stupid. Yeah. Have you well, thought about you not do doing the stupid thing? Like, yeah. well, let me help you figure out how to fix or undo or rectify. I'll fix your stupidity or the dumb thing you did. That's right. Where instead what we need to be doing is just like, I'm sorry, man. I, I can see the emotional repercussions are hurting you. That sucks. Let me just sit with you in that. And that's just such a better way to live. But I, I don't think I've, I don't know how well I've done with that over the years. Uh, I think I'm very American in my desire to fix it, but I think I also have like a heavy dose of that just in the way I was raised and in my DNA. And I wonder what would happen if more people had the capacity just to do that what yeah. would happen to the conversation around racism? Yeah. If you no, would th- find more people saying, I see your pain, I'm sorry. It sounds super hokey and Mr. Rogers, but like a hug, a beer, and a meal, right? Like like the power of a of, of physical contact. I mean, this is not my opinion. This is like empirical science, right? Like this is why pe- one of the reasons that people go crazy in, in um solitary confinement, right? Because you don't have any physical contact, right? When you're in pain, one of the best things neurologically for your brain brain is a hug, right? And just say, hey, hey man, like, tell me more, right? When we're sitting down over a meal, good meal, just saying, like, tell, tell me about yourself, right? And it's hard, it's easier to critique and push back and do the stats and do the horse jockeying. Um, yeah. Over big stats, right? 11 million people got killed in the Holocaust, da, 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 da. But when you ever meet or in the presence of a Holocaust survivor, that's an altogether different experience. Yeah. And it's because there's a connection with another human being, right? Because it's easy to talk about stats, right? Um, there's distance there. But if, when there's proximity, 
right? When you're mm -hmm. close to somebody who is in pain, you are designed as a human being to nurture and to be uh, in solidarity, right? And that's that's the ask. And like, like, how do you get into solidarity? The same way that you meet people your freshman year of college, right? You go to somebody's room and hang out, right? You go to a party and hang out, right? You play frisbee. You 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 engage. Um, that's know. a great that's a great um, segue into what what do you do about segregation? What do you do when you've got a group of people, right? You got a group of people over here who are like, I really want to do something about racism. They look around, 95% of their community looks like them. Sure. Do we get up and move, get a new house, try and find a neighborhood that is predominantly the other race, move in and try and become a different type of neighborhood? And then you get called a gentrifier, right? Yeah. What do you do? Yeah. Okay. I, so I, again, zoom, zooming out meta level, I think the original sins, sins of this country uh, leave us 250 years, 300 years later, making these crazy, it's the worst would you rather ever, right? Where it's like, do I do my part to reconcile this thing, but put my kid in a crappy education system yes. and have that affect them for the rest of their life? Or do I stay here and take care of my kids who are the next generation, are the hope, all these, you know, beautiful things, but then they don't have access to people who look differently, right? It's like, so I think understanding that context and from that context, giving yourself a ton of grace, right? And saying that like, you're doing your part um, without getting left off the hook, but it's about engaging. It's about uh, having the super awkward conversation of like, hey man, I don't really know how to do this, but like I eat three times a day, like one of those times we should do it together. Um, or like, right? Yeah. Like, hey, like I really like craft beer. I really like, you know, rare whiskeys from Kentucky. Like, would you, want to try out one of those things or like, Hey, can I come to you? Like, do you like these things? Can I go to you? Can I go with you when you get your hair cut? Right. Um, it's really about, it's not, there's nothing, there's no special sauce in, in developing cross, um, cultural and cross racial relationships. The thing I will say is that, um, often well-intentioned in my experience, often well-intentioned white folks, uh, try have a neutral or negative experience and then give up. And I think it's really important uh, for folks to continue to engage, right? It's the same way as, as I, as a cisgender straight, uh, I'd like to think good looking guy. Mm. Uh, I have to understand the context and the history that I come to every interaction with a woman with, right? So if I, I mean, this happened to me in college, right? I showed up, I met my first, I mean, she was not okay with dudes and just like yelled at me about the history of oppression and this and that, all things that were true that men who look like me had done to women who look like her. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, oh, oh wow. This is kinda, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do any of those things knowingly. Yeah. I didn't do any of those things, but you're like yelling at me as if I did all those things and like blasted around the internet. Like, yeah. I, oh, okay, wow, that was a different experience. And then um, it takes a lot of grace and humility not to fight back and not to defend myself in that situation and talk to yeah. somebody else and process it with somebody else, right? So um, that would be the one caveat where too often our solutions look like Mr. Rogers. Hey, if I just have a black or brown person over or my Asian friend over, everything yeah. will be fine, right? And it goes back to this, this frankly, arrogance on, of Americans. If I, if I just employ this strategy, I can fix it versus let me be present and lament 
with you. Well, you you know, you've used the word lament a, a, a couple times, and sure. what really strikes me is um, juxtaposed against the concept of fixing it, that this is something that maybe can't be fixed in that traditional sense, but there is the idea of sitting and just lamenting what really strikes me about it, it's super uncomfortable emotionally, of course. but it also does it not require an admonition of history and context, yeah. which to me strikes me as part of the issue that a lot of people have this idea that, dude, you, you guys, you, the, the brown skin community, that's over. Like it, it, it ended in the 20th century. So I don't really know what, what do we have to lament about? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think one, again, I mean, this goes to how we teach history, right? Um, so we, we are taught too often that, you know, 1863, man, emancipation proclamation, like we're done with that. Wipe our hands. Like, Hey, like you, like, come on. Like, you got to move on at some point. And we don't acknowledge uh, sharecropping. We don't acknowledge Jim Crow South. We don't acknowledge the passing of uh, 1955 Brown versus Board of Education, 1964 Civil Rights Act. But those, those laws got packed. But in actuality, um, there's very little systemic redressing of the problems, right? If you look, I mean, and I wish this was my opinion, but unfortunately it's not. If you just do a little research and look at, the spike in private schools in around 1955 and 1964, right? That, that, that is powerful and compelling evidence. It says like, even on the surface, even though in the history books, we talk about these two big dates, it didn't actually happen in, in actuality, right? People said, okay, if you're going to integrate my schools, I'm going to take all my resources, all my money and start mm-hmm. my private schools, most of which were Christian schools, right? So, uh, as a, as personally, as with it, as, as a Christian and with my faith being, you know, the, the, the center of my life, like that's hard to recon- reconcile, right? Mm-hmm. Where my brothers and sisters in faith said like, nah, dude, we're not doing this. And we're taking all our toys and going to a different playground. And, and in fact, you can't get into that playground. We're not going to let you into that playground. And it's yeah. not going to be as overt anymore. We're just going to have an admissions office, you know, and we're going to make you take a test, right? Yes. And we're just going to. You know, I, this may not be a good fit for you, right? Um, so, so it's similar pieces, but just the like a chameleon, it it changes, right? Um, yeah. So you've got in order to so going back to it's like it keeps coming circling back to systemic concepts yeah, here. That's right. You get this idea that like, hey, you know what would be really helpful right now? Lamenting. Yeah. In order to lament, you actually have to recognize some context here, some history here. You, you have to be able to see why it is still a challenge. And even, even in saying that statement, there's an inherent privilege in it that mm. I, I, we others have the luxury of recognizing it as a problem, as if our admonition of it is somehow validating that there actually is a problem. It's just a whole weird gross cycle of, well, in order to lament, I've got to actually believe that this stuff even exists. So I'm, it just, it's, I'm, I'm getting like tied up here in all the different nuances of it, but there's this weird privilege in it that seems like part of the problem also. Yeah. 
And I think I think privilege is a word that is again sort of like racist, uh, thrown around so much that it loses uh, the the tip of that spear gets really dulled. And you know we know that um, right when something's dull, it's just going to do more damage than actually good, actual mm-hmm. good. Um, not not very often has a person. It's happened more more times than, than I'm comfortable with, but. Every day, people don't walk around and call me the N-word, right? That just doesn't happen, right? But racism 2.0, 3.0 have evolved in people who hold the, those views create yeah. banking systems, housing systems, educational systems, religious systems, tax systems, right? And then pull their hands off and say, well, we're just all going to live by the laws, law and order, right? We're a country of law and order, right? And it's pushing... The, the onus onto systems, but we 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 just ignore. We we're willfully blind to the fact that I talked about earlier. Thomas Jefferson was one of the guys who created these systems, right? This is the same guy who wrote "All Men Are Created Equal," and you heard the quote, right, where he's like, "Hey, I got this thing, this wolf by the horn, by the ears, and I can't really let him go." Yeah. So this is the guy who created one of our original systems that we just grow up in and think it should be this way. But we, we ignore his input into the system. And, that, and that's, that's one of the calls to action for recognizing systemic racism, right? Because, but, because I think there's many well-intentioned white folks who, who can legitimately say and truthfully say, like, hey, like, I didn't do any of this stuff. I'd never owned slaves. I didn't call you anything. I, didn't, I, didn't, I never discriminated as far as I know. I didn't fire or hire anybody because of this or that. Like, I don't get it when you're saying these I'm things. I'm not actively, like, I'm not actively exactly. engaged exactly. in prejudice. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't at Charlottesville. I think that's disgusting. The worst thing you could call me is a racist. Like, what, do you, like, what else do you mm-hmm. want me to do? Right? Yeah. And I think that's the allure and that's the, the, the elixir of systems, right? Because they're created, they're faceless, they just move, and they're big machines. They feel... Uh, intractable. They feel uh, daunting, right? They feel what are like- some of the worst systems, Jason, that you can think of? Uh, and I, I know putting you on the spot, but you've studied some of these systems. What are some of the examples that you've seen that are the most egregious? Right. So you just got to follow the money, right? So when you talk when you talk about education, and when you talk about housing, and when you talk about access to wealth, when you talk about access to uh, banking loans, right? They're uh, I don't know how many of the audience members will know about redlining, but redlining is a process outlined in almost every uh, major American city where certain chunks, certain zip codes, banks were not allowed to lend money to African-Americans to buy houses in those pro- in those zip codes, right? Uh, in, a, in many of the deeds that still exist, I mean, it's disgusting if you look um, closely, but many of the deeds will say like, hey, you can buy this house, but you have to promise that you won't resell it to an African-American family. Right. So, in and that's still for people listening, that's still happening because this is the type of thing where, like, well, I, yeah, I'm okay, sure, that happened in the 20s. Yeah, no, no, yeah, it, it's still, it's still happening. Mm-hmm. Right. And still, uh, it's breathtaking to go and look at the original deed and see that line written in there. You're like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh. When you talk about an actual person input, putting an input into a system, right, it just feels like a system and just happens. But somebody yeah. actually wrote that sentence, hit return put it in an yeah. envelope and sent it off and signed the document, right? And it just, you know, 15, 20 years, you know, 100 years later, it feels like, oh, that's the way it's always been. Uh, but housing is a big system. Education is a big system, right? Again, zoom out. Um, 
we don't have to fund education through property taxes. We just think of it that way because that's the way it's always been, right? You, you buy a house because it's in a good school district, right? I wouldn't buy a house because it's not in a good school district. Mm -hmm. That's a system. That's a connection that, that Moses didn't bring down from Mount Sinai, right? Like somebody designed it that way. And there was intention behind that design. So the, the call to recognize systemic justice, injustice is to say like, hey, there is intention in the design of these systems. Can we recognize that? Once we recognize that, can we work towards a solution? Well, let's talk about that for a second too. And I don't really, I don't know how to do my next question. It's like a devil's advocate question. Far so away. let's say you're saying that some of these systems were created with intention. So it's hard to argue against don't resell your house to someone who is black as a, there was clear intention there. Mm -hmm. But when you're talking about property taxes in school districts, et cetera, and you're listening or you're, you're reading about this and you're bristling saying, oh, that's, how do you know that was done with intention? How do you know that just isn't the way it always was? And isn't that accusatory? Why does that matter? Man, uh, I would encourage people to go do some research, right? Again, I, I wish this was my opinion, but uh, if you look at what uh, politicians and sort of brokers of power have said historically and done historically, I mean, Barry Goldwater is a classic example in the Southern strategy in both the Nixon and the Reagan administration where he says, like, of the war on drugs. At the time, it was not a big deal. And he says, hey, if we can just make this up to be a big deal, we can ostracize hippies and black folks and then use that as a justification, right? So like, these are people who aren't hiding, aren't hiding their opinions, but are creating systems, right? Um, and now we've got, a, we've got a generation, we were talking about this the other day, where now because heroin is infecting the suburbs, yeah, it's, now, yeah. it's now a quote unquote opioid crisis. Yeah, that's right, that's because right. Because now it's affecting white people. Whereas when you were growing up, in LA, that's not how it was referred to. No, not at all. I mean, I grew up, I grew up in the hood. I mean, I grew up in Watts, right? So uh, in the early 90s. So this is like, I mean, mm -hmm. when Tupac talks about city of Compton, city of Watts, like uh, California love, I mean, that, that's where I grew up. And, yeah. and uh, the LAPD at that time and place were an occupying force with bad, bad intentions, uh, mm -hmm. with a malice in their hearts. And I can tell you, um, I've seen many a man abused and um, hurt by by cops that were not emotionally connected to the city and that to that part of the city and that does damage right and it hurts me I'm talking about me personally it hurts me um, to watch for the first part of my life heroin addicts um, junkies pimps and drug dealers be called the worst the wretches you don't want to grow up to be a drug dealer the drug dealers are the worst he's he's a criminal we're just going to throw literally throw that person away we're literally going to lock that person away and throw them away and it hurts now that when people are using the same drug we didn't we didn't do the courtesy of changing the name of the drug when people in middle america are overdosing on heroin now all of a sudden it's an opioid epidemic you know the the president's saying you know We've got to, we've got to, we've got to do something about it. I'm going to have a task force to change this, right? And yeah. that, that, that hurts when, in one case, we're throwing, literally throwing these people away, killing, incarcerating, letting them die of overdose. And another, well, we, we've really got to fix this. This is out of control. This is not great. And I think this, this goes back to the, 
conversation we were talking about earlier, Black Lives Matter, White Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, right? When I'm mm -hmm. telling you this specific hurt happened, right? This, the use of this drug, by, by the same drug, again, this, they, they didn't even change the name of heroin, right? Mm -hmm. by, by the same drug used by two different people resulted in two vastly different reactions. Yeah. And I'm telling you, that hurt because I lived through it. I watched the LAPD bounce a handcuffed friend of mine off the hood of the car as if this guy was a basketball, mm. laughing and chuckling the whole time, broke out all of his teeth. That was, I was 10. That was my first realization, right? Okay. And then I had the audacity to say, hey, my dad's a cop. That dude cussed me up and down, right? So like th these, these are cops. And then I'm going home to a cop being like, hey, dad, this happened. Like, what, what happens, right? Yeah. And he's saying like, hey, you got to be careful, right? Because they don't know wow. that I'm a cop, right? So this is, th I'm coming to age in this, in this swell, right? And then now to hear you know, the rhetoric of opioid ep epidemic, yeah, opioid crisis. It's 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 a hard pill to swallow, right? Especially for a dude where like my life is about reconciliation. My life is about bringing, you know, groups that historically been separated and marginalized together. I mean, that hurts. It hurts. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's terrible, Jason. That's traumatic, man. So so I yeah I think going going back to your question about. Um, sort of contextualizing and bringing it all together I, you've, you've got to you've got to deal with one issue at a time and like uh, I, I, I sort of post-election I think uh, we rightfully so oh, need to hear the experiences of folks that were overlooked in Appalachian middle America poor working, poor working white folks uh, but I, I want to do that I want to I listen to Fox News all the time now National Review is in my is my nude feed I read Hilda Elegy um, lost in their own uh, country. Yeah. But my ask is that if we're going to do that, if we're going to be empathetic and hear the experiences of the marginalized, we need to do it to all folks who are marginalized. So uh, completely agree. How do you, do, does it seem like, to play devil's advocate again, um, does it seem like you're doing with that the inverse of the all lives matter thing? What's the difference between I'm kind of setting you up, I hope, for a softball question. Yeah. But what's the difference between saying, you come in and say, hey, Black Lives Matter, and someone comes back and says, no, 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 all lives matter. And then what you're saying now is, I appreciate that hillbilly elegy lives matter, but all lives matter, or black lives matter. What's the difference in those two scenarios? No, my, I'm, what I'm saying is... Uh... Address, address the hurt that is being brought to the table uh, at that specific moment through the lens of history, through the lens of, of context, right? So when, when you think, um, my, my pushback to hillbilly elegy, um, white lives matter, all of which is true and veritable suffering, mm -hmm. you have to look at it through the lens of context. The original one of the original sins, and this is Andrew Jackson, right, the first populist president, who says like, "Hey, I want to expand uh, suffrage to all white men, right, poor white men included, right, and that's a bargain, it's a gamble, it's an exchange of, hey, I'll give you this whiteness coin that plays, even though it's against your economic interest." And this is what King is talking about again in Selma, right, where he said, uh, "Powerful power brokers have sold 
poor white men a bill of goods that says like, hey, you're still going to be poor. You're still not going to have any access to education. You're not, not going to have access to any of the resources that can change your life. But at least you're white and at least you're not black. Mm-hmm. Right. And that has historically happened throughout our country. So when we come to a moment now, when we talk about uh, Hill with the LG and we talk about recollecting Affleck and we talk about coal country and all these people are, you know, talking about that. That that is that is that is hard for me as a black man um, mm-hmm. to to hear and to stomach because when the same economic forces push black people out of uh, Detroit when they when they brought black people from Africa here right when they when they mm-hmm. forced people into chattel slavery and Jim Crow South and and sharecropping. There was no national outcry to hear those stories. There was no national outcry to re- rectify. There was no national outcry for politicians to stop through uh, the rust belt, so to speak, um, and hear yeah. those people's stories. And that, that, that's hard. So if we're talking about specifically how it affects black folks in this country, uh, we have to look at that history and context. And then yeah. we have to understand that there was decisions and systems made where po- poor white folks were split Right, where the economic interests of poor, poor black folks and poor white folks and poor folks in general were split down the middle of racial lines. Right, and if I can make one last point, um, yeah. I would challenge your listeners of how many people, sort of off the cuff, know about Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon's Rebellion happened early in our country's history, and it was one of the first cases where um, Nathaniel Bacon brought together the interest of poor folks. Right, poor, 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 poor. Uh, black slaves, poor free black men, and poor uh, English immigrants, and said, we need to fight together in class solidarity against these injustices. Uh, and they got slaughtered, but um, there's a reason. Again, you talk about educational systems, how, how history's taught, all these things. Yeah. There's a reason people don't know about Bacon's Rebellion, because it's the precedent of the country. said, so like, hey, irrespective of race, we have more in common, because neither one of us can get a loan to buy land. Neither one of us can get our kids in the schools we want. Neither one of us can, um, you know, save enough money to buy our wives a nice diamond ring. Like we have actually more in common in terms of uh, being on the other end of exploitation than this race thing does, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's sort of brushing under the table. And then poor white folks are given, hey, just use this white token and we'll give you a little bit, but not enough where you can actually change the system. Yeah, so it's, it's this, going back to early in the conversation talking about scarcity, it's not a question of whether or not there's enough justice to go around and whether whose pain is more painful. That's right. It's saying understanding the complexities and pain of losing your job. I grew up in Detroit and a number of family members and just watched that city basically turn into a shell. Yeah. So it's not saying your pain is less important what you're recognizing, Jason, is the reaction to that pain is so dramatically different. Yeah. And that is an example that can be used as a litmus test of where we're at or where your own heart is at even. Like if you're if you're looking at the coal miner who's lost his job and you feel it more, well, it's not necessarily fair because if you're a family member or you know someone, you're automatically going to feel it more. But the national reaction, collective reaction of one group of people 
experiencing pain versus another group of people experiencing pain is a good measure as to where we're at in terms of valuing those lives and valuing uh, their suffering. Sure. I mean, and I think often the uh, it's sort of the table crumb uh, dynamic, but there's enough justice to go around. Yeah. Right. And we, we, we talk about justice as if it's a scarce resource. And that's just not true. We talk about justice as if only black people can get it or only blue people can get it or only white people can get it. And that's just fundamentally not true. And so what you do you do right paradigm, now? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jason. And if, and if you enter that paradigm, um, you fight. And this is, again, your brain. Right. You fight when humans have a fight flight reflex. Right. When you when you enter a scenario where you're fighting for scarce resources, yep. you engage differently and you fight differently because you're not fighting for, um, you're fighting for your existence. It's an existential threat if justice is a limited resource. So if justice is a scarce resource, then I have to say, I have to fight you when yep. you say yellow lives matter because there's only a little bit of, limited amount of justice and I need, I need some of that justice for my red lives, right? So like, when yep. part of part of that is a pushback that says like, oh, th there's not enough to go around. I have to make sure me and mine get it. Otherwise, we'll be left on the other side of it. And I think that's indicative of if you look back at Charlotte, right, where you hear a group, a cadre um, of largely white European descent, uh, single males who said, like, you will not replace us. We're, yes. we're becoming the minority. Yeah. We're fighting back. Right. And that to me is indicative of, you know. That in this system we've created, being a minority is not a good thing. Because if you were okay with being a minority, you wouldn't be out here. Yeah. Right? So, so the inverse of their argument to me reveals that we've all understand that to be a minority is not a good thing. And it is there's, worth fighting. There's winners and losers. There's power and there's power less. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So when I say there's enough justice to go around, that 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 is in some ways a revolutionary act because that means we must design the system to unleash this justice. So speaking of, of uh, we're transitioning maybe into healing. Sure. What do we, huge question, what do you think we need to do to bring everyone into justice so that we can start to heal and rebuild these systems? Yeah, man. I mean, this this is the question, and uh, people who are much more intelligent than I have wrestled with this for a long time. I think my my first um, my first ask would be to lament again, just to feel the pain, um, and to tie your boat literally uh, with the brother or sister who has been affected. Uh, the second would be to listen, uh, and listen and listen and listen. Mm -hmm. uh, before, because we, we know this, right? Um, we know this just from school, right? Like I can't solve a complex math problem if I don't really have an understanding of the problem, right? I can't really write a solid essay if I haven't read the book, right? If I've missed and skipped a whole semester of class, I can't sit down and write that final exam uh, because I don't know what's going on. And I'm just sort of running my mouth and in many ways causing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. And then once, once you have a functioning, working uh, understanding of the problem, then I would ask people to assess 
where they are explicit and complicit in these systems and work to re redress that. And that is, that is in some ways the biggest ask um, because that means, that does mean at some ex to some extent sacrificing uh, your privilege, sacrificing uh, where your kids go to school, sacrificing what churches yeah. you attend, sacrificing your comfort, knowing that other groups of people have been grossly uncomfortable for, for all of their existence here. And I have a yeah. beautiful example of a guy that I work with where um, he helped uh, found the school that I'm at and he uh, has put his blood, sweats, and tears into creating it. Uh, and we came to a, a scenario where, I mean, he's, he's, he's a white guy, uh, and we came to a scenario where you know, there was sort of a power vacuum and he could have justifiably and rightfully taken that power, but he loved me uh, better than any white man has ever loved me and gave mm. me a huge chunk of power um, in a way that I think makes us all better. Um, it, the community saw and recognized his uh, giving up of that power. Uh, I certainly did, and I am now both personally loyal to him in a way that I would have not have been. Um, and I would have understand if he took it because he, I mean, he helped found the school, blood and sweat and tears. It's his school. Yeah. I'm the guy who came in lately, late uh, to the game. But that's one small instance of uh, redressing some of the past issues. Yeah. Um, and we've talked, you know, at length about that. But it's those sort of stories of saying, uh, you know, both in like where, where, where do I have power and how can I use it to, um, right, to make make lives better for for folks right how can i use it to uh redress some of the wrongs i i have one uh i have a lot more questions but i know we're starting to get close to time how do we do that how do you how do the race that's in power or the group that's in power how does one do that without furthering the power that they're in or and or without patronizing the group that they're attempting to help for example uh Earlier this year, there was, I, I'm, I'm going to blank on all the names right now, but there was a female senator. Uh, I think she was a senator. Kamala Harris from California? I think it was. It was the, um, the particulars aren't as important as the, as the story itself. But essentially, what happens is she's putting up a stink around a specific issue. Mm -hmm. And then it takes a group of old white guys I don't mean that. That sounds, that sounds derogatory. It takes a group of white senators to say the things she's been saying for years. Sure. And that group now gets lauded as the heroes of the story. And so they're using their power yeah. to affect yeah. change for a minority group. But the minority group's been saying this for years. Yeah. And the minority group is now rightfully like a little bit pissed, glad that the thing went forward, but a little bit pissed. What do you do with that? And how can we behave in such a way that doesn't further that power dynamic? And like I said, is patronizing towards the minority group. Yeah, I think, I think that's, that's happened very recently with the sort of John McCain becoming the hero of shooting down healthcare. And when several other uh, female senators from yep. Republican states had sort of taken the stance way, very, way earlier than he ever did. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that, that's probably another conversation about sort of the dynamics between it's men exactly and women. It's exactly this. I think it's, that, but that, it's, it's that kind of idea. Yeah. Yeah. And the piece is moving, I mean, eerily the same way. Right. So I think what 
people can practically do is amplify the voices of people at the margins. And that means so you should shut up, right? You need to, 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 to not talk, right? Like, uh, it's funny because I, I was about to talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I, I'll never forget. I, I had been teaching for about eight years and, you know, I was feeling, you know, big for my britches, so to speak. Uh, and, piped up in a faculty meeting, this and that, this and that. Uh, and, and one of uh, the older, wiser uh, faculty members is, hey, dude, like, like we got this. We, we, we know how to do that, right? So in terms of amplifying the voices, uh, advocate for, fiercely advocate for, but please don't speak for, right? So advocate for, create space, and then put that voice in the space that you fought. That's a way to be an ally, right? So if I want to fight and to, to actually, you know, get my skin in the game and be an ally, one of the ways I would do that is uh, to use my power, whether it's at church, my home, to invite people over, to have discussions about race and injustice and all that stuff. But in those spaces, give the mic, give the power, give the seat of power to the folks who've experienced it. So one other question about groups of people, you had mentioned before that one of the things we all need to do is learn more. Uh, and for the record, we're going to get a list of books and articles from you and post this on the blog yeah. post when we, when we publish this. But one of the things that strikes me is the person who is predisposed to learn more about context is already well on their way to arguably fix this issue in their own life. Mm -hmm. Now they might need a pro they might need a catalyst, but there's not going to be a whole lot of convincing needed on, Hey man, this is a problem because the type of person who's, who's open-minded and empathetic enough to go do research on an issue is likely, I, I would have to say, and this is stereotyping, not going to be in the camp of racism is not a problem. There's no such thing as systemic racism. But yeah. then there's this other group of people who are, I'm a good person and I'm not a racist, but who are not predisposed to do research, who are not predisposed to open their hearts and listen and hear these things. Is that group of people, can we ever get through to that group of people? Is it worth spending time and energy getting through to that group of people? Or is this something where we treat them in love and respect, but work with people who are already where the, the soil is ready for uh, planting, so to speak. Yes. Got it. Yes. I think it, it's both and and everybody in between, right? So mm -hmm. uh, folks are at different points in their journeys. Um, and for me, I just, I have to, force myself, I have to will myself to see the image of God imprinted on every person, irrespective of our disagreements. Um, that said, I'm not able to reach nor engage um, everyone, but, but uh, two quotes immediately popped in my head. One is from Mother Teresa, where she says, uh, we, we, we fight because we've forgotten that we belong to each other. And the other is uh, from Dr. King, where he says, we're all uh, connected in an inescapable network of mutuality, right? So, um, and this is, not, this is not my thought, but uh, uh, 
Father Greg Boyd, who who does great work here at Homeboy Industries in LA, he 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 says, uh, "There's no us in them. We're an us with no them, right? So we're a group of folks that are together, and there's just just is no other. Uh, So uh, for some folks, right, it's going to be awkward racist uncle at the Thanksgiving table, right? For some folks, for me, it's going to be more nuanced." questions with you know sort of well-intentioned white friends unpacking the history and the context and uh the microaggressions and all these these buzzwords that go around for some folks it's going to be google right it's going to be yeah um, did these things that brooks is talking about actually happen what's bacon re- rebellion what happened in 1955 yeah. what's 1964 did thomas and jefferson actually say that like who's sally hennings right um Right. So education, going back to this education idea is huge. And if you are if you are thinking in the back of your mind of the racist uncle at Thanksgiving, getting offended isn't going to be a useful solution, but getting educated potentially. And it's 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 a better approach. So you can ignore maybe that's what you need to do for your yep. own mental health. Speaking of that earlier, but coming to that person with an example let me tell you a story about what happened in this to this specific person. That's right. And there's some data is going to be a lot better than you can't say things like that. That's like, right. And I think, right? I, yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think, I think one of the things that if we're talking about, I'd be more interested in a conversation. If we're talking about deconstruction, I would be more interested in a conversation of construction, right? So embrace the hyphen is one of the things that I've said in the past where uh, if I'm just black and you guys are just white, then we have a history of conflict and we have a history that is of, of impasse. Uh, but if you're Irish American with a little bit of Welsh, with a little bit of English and maybe uh, some Cherokee for good measure and Leaf, if you're Scandinavian um, and Swedish American with uh, a little bit German American in that there's an immediate download of where I could say, well, wait, really? You're Irish? Like your people were, uh, yeah exploited and treated just as bad as mine when the swamps in Louisiana got drained, right? When like, we have signs that says, no Irish, no blacks, no, no this, no that, right? Like you're Jewish American, man, like, like the hot, like uh, my heart hurts when we talk about the Holocaust. What you're, 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 you're Welsh American, man, the English did some crazy stuff to y'all. Like, tell me more about that. Right. And it's a more rich and a vibrant conversation if we know each other's history. But if you're just white, and I'm just black, it flattens it out in a way that is not helpful. This is a good segue to language, Jason. This is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. What what language can we start using that we're not, and what language should we stop using that we are? Brother and sister. Okay. We I assume that's the other. language we should be using. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I grew up in sort of an evangelical church, and when I was a kid, I thought it was ho- hokey. Um, you know, brother John and brother, brother Jack and sister, mm. you know, or miss, miss so-and-so, right? Like I, I could not call an older woman or older person by their name, right? It was always miss Stacy or miss Renee or miss somebody. Um, but I, I have come back to my roots because I want to signal to every person that I talk to kinship, right? Um, because if you're not part of my kin and kith, I can just throw you away. Um, but we all have the black sheep of the family. We all have that person who struggles with substance, but every November and December they show up for dinner. 
and no matter how they smell or what they've done the night before, there's a place for them at the table because they're part of your family, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that that is one of the shifts in terms of language um, that we can engage in because it takes uh, the disposable nature. We have to fight against a culture where, uh, not to pick on Snapchat, but right, we take disposable pictures, we take disposable phones, we have uh, disposable cars, we have disposable food, we have everything that can be thrown away. And I never have to really think about the consequences, but people cannot, they cannot be disposable, right? And one of the ways to reinforce that and to fight back against that is to address each other in familial terms. You're my yeah. uncle, you're my grandpa, you're my dad, right? And I'm connected to you because I am you and you are me. We're, we're interconnected, right? And this is not hokey-dokey California hippie stuff, right? Like there's only one earth, man. Like, mm -hmm. we're, like, 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 like we are literally connected to each other, right? I literally cannot throw a human being away. I can't just explain, I can't throw garbage away. It goes affect somebody else. Like we're all connected. There's, there's the pale blue dot, man. We're all in here together. So whether, whether or not you want to acknowledge it, we are brothers and sisters. So it's helpful uh, to reinforce that in our language. In I was struck by some of the language before you go into the language we should stop using. I was struck by some of the other words that we've used here that you've used here. Things like, instead of saying slavery, maybe not always, but the people they owned, he owned someone. Just yeah. something as subtle as that hearing it's arresting to hear slavery is is almost uh, inane now that's right but hearing that they owned someone wow that's different yep um talk about the uh, cognitive tax things like that that are wow yeah i haven't thought of it that way or geez that's really helpful yeah no i think i think and this might you know move to another conversation but I think racist, prejudice, slavery, privilege, those are, those are words that have, uh, that their, their cutting edge has been dulled. Mm -hmm. So when I say um, folks that were owned, enslaved Africans, um, yeah. that is to reclaim the cutting edge of that history and those concepts, right? So that's an intentional choice to use language that evokes um, the horror that was was exacted on them right when i say uh folks who were cooked to death right mm -hmm. to talk about um the holocaust that is to evoke uh the brutality of that and, and, and just to to jump in i i think one of the things that i see as someone who specializes in communications is the exhaustion that comes from people thinking that sometimes the there's a new word in town and I just can't keep up and I'm exhausted and goddamn those uh, politically correct people. That's right. Some of the, the reason that that has to happen is because words, I, I, f I think that words need to go through cycles of redemption That's right. where they have to evolve because a word gets adopted. It means something now to a large group of people. It gets watered down. And the only way to redeem that word is to evolve it, find a new phrase, and then come back to it. That's right. And it happens in everything, not just this. It happens in every industry where after two years, that next hot thing becomes the word everyone's using, and now it means nothing. And it yeah. has to evolve, right? Yeah. That's it. That's it. Um, what, are think, those, I mean, what are those words that we're using? I, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, th I think, I think um, 
anytime I feel defensive or self-defensive or feel like I need, like, why can't you just, uh, anytime that I've trained myself, hopefully trained myself to examine that defensiveness, right? Am I pushing back against the new word because I actually have an issue with the word or because I'm uncomfortable with the topic? If I'm mm-hmm. uncomfortable with the topic, I need to do some work there on, on rooting out. Why, why, why does, why do issues of uh, trans issues, why do issues of LGBTQ, why do issues of immigration, why do those actually rough my, rough my feathers, right? Like, why, why do LGBTQI, XYZ, rah, 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 right? Why is there I'm, another I, letter? God why, damn it. Exactly. Why is there, if there's another yeah. letter, right? Like, your issue isn't with the letter. Your issue is there's something, there's a deeper rooted issue. That letter is just the leaf on the tree, the fruit that's blossomed from a deeper root system that d- demands investigation. Well, I think it requires a level of humility as well to admit the fact that it's embarrassing. Yep. It's, it's downright embarrassing to use the wrong phrase in a group of people. And to be fair, the politically correct crew can often be quite uh, rude in yeah. their that's right. telling you that that's the wrong phrase. That's so it right. is embarrassing and it that's requires right. a level of humility to say, geez, I, it, it does in some ways foster an unnecessary timidity in, in yep. preventing people from candor in these conversations. Well, well I, and th- this is, again, going back to my, my, my role as an educator, right? I, I, it is interesting and fascinating every time to, to interact with a white toddler who points out that I'm black, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like they'll, they'll often point up and say, Mom, he's brown. He's not black. Right. And then mom is like flush red. Oh my God, we got to go. Ah, ah, just like, ah, right. Um, and, yeah. and one, one of the things that happens in those interactions is that the kid learns, Oh, I just stepped in it. I don't know what I stepped in. I don't know yeah. what happened, but I know I can't talk about this because everybody flipped out all the bells, all the whistles, all the alarms went off. Yeah. Right. Um, and it's, it's with grace to, for both sides to engage and talk to kids about melanin, right? And talk to, to kids about like, hey, yeah. like this is what happens with the sun and here's how our, our bodies are super cool that they react in a way. Don't you think that's really cool? Um, yeah. Because to, you know, and this is getting back to your idea of how language has evolved. At some point it was cool to be colorblind. I don't see color, right? But then you realize that you're stripping people of their value, worth, history, context, language, culture, et cetera, yeah. right? So now it's like, we're just going to do this, but I don't want to talk about it. But then this, but it's like, no, man, it's like my body is cool because it does this and your body's cool because it does that. Like, I really like your hair. Well, I like your hair. The yeah. problem is we, when we assign value, that's historically where we've gone wrong. When we assign yeah. value to the differences, but the differences are cool, right? Like who wouldn't want to have red, white, black and blue when you can do the Technicolor version versus just the, you know, black and white TV, right? Like, right. HD, 4K, all this stuff is, is, is great. So speaking of this idea of valuing different cultures and subcultures, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, are we, are we trying to evolve into a unified culture where we all appreciate the same pop culture memes, we all listen to similar music, or are we trying to evolve into a more understanding group where there can still be subcultures where you're still allowed to like Taylor Swift and Chili's and you're still allowed to like whatever it is you like and like where I don't have to listen to rap music to be part of black culture and you don't have to listen to Tom Petty to be part of white culture. Where, where, what's the goal here? Man, uh, so many, so many places I can go with this. I think, uh, the first thing I would say is like, 
we still put, right, when we're talking about what's the goal here, what are we trying to do, it still puts white people at the center. And I think when you uh, look at both how the demographics of this country are going uh, and then just sort of helpful conversations, we, ha we have to train ourselves, again, using language to move away from white people as the center. The goal is that uh, we would be able to live into the beautiful ideals of our country, right? Where all people are created equal and have an equal and equitable, not just we're starting from the same spot now, but historic wrongs are being righted, have an equitable pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, right? Uh, that, that's, that's the goal. That's, that's one of the few things that keeps me going in this American experiment. Yeah. Right? Um, well, I feel like I see part of where that question is coming from is I see the on the more negative side of the spectrum, this idea that like, well, if that group of people would just get with the program, culturally, this wouldn't yeah. be a problem. So, you know, it's that darn rap music or it's yeah. those violent video games. It's these things that we assign the problems to and we say, well, if they would just not do that then this wouldn't be a problem. And I, yeah. I don't, I, I'm not sure what to do with that, frankly, Jason, but hearing you, would, hearing I you would, say like, man, I shouldn't have to, you, you shouldn't have to know everything that happened in friends to be a non-threat. Yeah. I would, I would lovingly and forcefully say, uh, get over yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, the idea that people have not or need to get with your program um, is frankly deeply offensive. Yeah. Uh, not 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 least in the which of that you figured it out, right? That your program is working. Uh, because if I could offer a critique, when I look at the opioid crisis, when I look at education, when I look at birth rates, when I look at any metri metric, uh, no group of people have figured it out. So to say, get with the program, just be normal, we we can measure normal and normal your normal is not a lifestyle i'm interested uh in pursuing so uh that 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 is a hard thing that needs to be said um to power right and the the again so much of the conversation is centered on whiteness on white as the default and that Mm -hmm. That is the perpetuation. That's a subtle system that continues these conversations, right? Okay, so let's just shift gears to current events that are happening right now. <laughs> Why don't you talk about monuments and Charlottesville? Man, uh, yeah, I think, so again, going back to this idea of pain, uh, and you've got to understand the history and context. I keep drilling down on that because it's so important. Uh, one, knowing when the monuments were put up, right? And they're put up as an act of terror, as an act of power uh, by white supremacists, mostly between the years of 1940 and 1960, right? So this is well after the Civil War. This is 100 years after the Civil War, where people are saying, like, I'm still in power. And then... Uh, so wait a second, elaborate on that. So, so for people who don't know this concept, and this is new, I think new to most of us, yeah. As we started to dig into this, that these weren't just a, a statues uh, that were erected because these were, quote unquote, great men. Yeah. These yeah, are no, statues that were erected to do something, to send a message. 
Exactly. Right. And so so almost immediately after the Civil War, you have this lost cause narrative, right, where uh, the slavery, you, you get the reframing, the reworking of the narrative that the Civil War really wasn't about slavery. It was really about states' rights. It was really about like brothers who had a disagreement that got too heated. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we're actually, you no, know, we're actually brothers. Right. And like what happened was, you know, big, big brother, the union, you know, kind of beat up on little brother. And little brother was like outgunned and outmatched and like was actually fighting for a valiant cause. And had he had, you know, you know, been a little stronger, hit the weights a little bit more, had a, a few more stakes, you know, he would have been able to to fight older yeah. brother. Right. So like that's just patently not true, right? We have access to these these guys, journals who are talking about like not like we're, we're fighting to maintain our our way of life, and that way of life is owning other people, right? Yeah. So when we when we fast forward. Um, to 1940s, 1960s, and people mostly in the South, mostly in the Jim Crow South are saying, hey, I want to put these monuments up as a reminder that you can't vote, that you can't live where you want, that you can't do what you want, and that I control you. Um, And I have, I have like, right, there's a guy on a huge horse with a huge gun, right? You can't do these things, and I'm willing to exercise force. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's 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 when and how these monuments are being put up. So when you come to me 60 years after that and say, like, hey, this is to protect heritage, this is to protect a way of life. Like, we can't just take these things down. I'm like, hey, man, <laughs> like, 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 so you're you're OK with. Coming after folks like me and using your power, your influence, your guns and your money to keep me down like that doesn't none of those things square. Right. Um, and I, I struggle as a guy uh, who wants to love my wife well and raise kids and teach to uh, memorialize people who owned other people. Yeah. That, that, that in, in, in an age where nothing seems to disqualify folks from leadership positions, surely yeah. owning another human being would, right? And I think the immediate, the immediate pushback uh, is, you know, well, can we get rid of it all and this and that? And I would say, like, hey, just like do the research. We can go back. John Adams was was um, one of the founding fathers, abolitionists, pushed really hard against slavery. We do not have a monument to him. He's the only uh, president not to have a monument, right? Well, only founding father not to have a monument, right? So when you talk about Washington and Jefferson and these guys, like, I appreciate you what you did. Good look, man. But but you owned humans and that, that, that has to, we have to say something about that and to not is to say something about that. Yeah. So let's, and, President and, and, Trump, and, go and ahead. To, and if I could put a, a fine point on it, right. A, a, a valid critique of me and my own faith would say, Hey, like you like idolized David, right. David did some gnarly stuff. Right. Like he, you know, got a guy killed, uh, rape and adultery, you know, doing all kind of stuff. Uh, but he's still, you know, air quote, um, the apple of God's own eye. Um, I would go back to something I said earlier. Hell or high water, I, I will force myself to see the image of God in every other human and will not throw people away. Mm-hmm. It feels an extra step in a direction I'm not comfortable with to lionize these folks and to worship them in this American civic religion that somehow glorifies an age 
where people like me were un- under constant attack. That's the step that I mean, I can, right. I can, I can, I can learn from Robert E. Lee. I can learn from Stonewall Jackson. I can learn from Ulysses S. Grant. I can learn yeah. from these guys, right? I can learn from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, everybody in between. But to to raise them up on another pedestal, that 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 for me is where I would draw the line. So President Trump comes in and says, "Where does it stop?" and yeah. gives his slippery slope speech, yeah. and starts talking about monuments that are on the National Mall. And That's when true. are those going to get rid of? Thomas Jefferson is one of those guys. Yeah. Where where should it stop? Yeah. Um, I, I think if we're serious about the conversation of reconciliation, if we're serious about the conversation of uh, redressing the historic wrongs, we can't, we can't do it. There, there's a time and a discrete time and place where uh, these men their work and their lives and what they've done to contribute and push forward in a positive way should be celebrated. Um, but a monument is, is a place, it's a ritual, it's part of, uh, to use sort of religious language, it's part of a liturgy, it's a part of a mm-hmm. pattern, a shaping and a formation to talk with deep reverence about these founding fathers, to talk with, talk with mm-hmm. uh, un, unwavering uh, certainty that what they did was right and should be honored and to question that is anti-American, right? To unquestion, to question that is unpatriotic. That to me is the shift. When we are we are worshiping broken human beings who themselves, Washington, go back and read. Washington himself says, "Hey, like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not all that qualified to be president here. Like, I, like you should pick somebody else." So this, these are his words. These are not my. This, this yeah. is him saying, "I'm, I'm not a perfect dude, but to worship him as such." Um, yeah. So I think a lot of people would be in agreement with a lot of the more progressive minded people, I suppose, would say, yeah, let's get rid of those monuments in the South that were clearly erected to terrorize and to send a message. Wait a second. You want to you want to get rid of the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, Mm D.C.? How dare you? Are you what do you I mean, is I mean, I mean, let's let again, like, like I, I come off. You know, 200 years later, sound like this crazy radical down with America, black fist up, Black Panther guy. But Washington himself, look, this is not my opinion. Look at mm-hmm. up the history. Washington himself says, hey, I'm just president. I'm not the king. I'm going to have this monument. But we're going to make an obelisk because I don't want people coming here to worship me. This is our first president. This is the $1 bill, baby. This is the guy who sets the precedent. So from the beginning, he says, we shouldn't really have monuments. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. is an obelisk because Washington himself said, don't make a statue of me, right? They had the technology, right? This, 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 they, they could make a statue of Washington. They made an obelisk because he said, I don't want to set this, this, yeah. this, this precedent. So if we're talking about, you know, these guys are falling, all the, we want to go back and make these, you know, what, what, how do we honor these guys? This is the guy who said, right, if we're going to value the Constitution, if we're going to value the Declaration of Independence, we're going to value the American Revolution, we're going to value all these things, the guy who found it, the founding fathers, the founding yeah. father said, don't do it. Well, it strikes me that it sort of comes back to a, a discrepancy on the definition of what is American. Because if, let's say tomorrow, a vote was passed that says, you know what, we need to rethink the Jefferson Memorial. That's a big one. That's a beautiful yeah. memorial yeah. Right, right downtown. You've got a group of people who are going to say that is you are you are destroying American history. You are destroying um, what America is, what America stands for. 
And then on the flip side, you've got another group of people who could argue you're, you're, destro- you're destroying what America shouldn't have stood for. And you're now redeeming what America's most pure intent could have been. I mean, I cannot imagine what that would look like if that, if a monument of that notoriety and location were to come under scrutiny. And you hear it, you heard it in President Trump's words. He's terrified that that's what's going to happen as a result of some of these Southern monuments being called into question. That's right. Well, I think, uh, again, I would lovingly and forcefully, uh, firmly, I would lovingly and firmly challenge uh, brothers and sisters uh, to consider the fact that if you are teaching American history via monuments, that is bad pedagogy. Mm-hmm. Like you are not doing a great job as a teacher. So if the goal is to teach American history, monuments are not the front line to do that work. Um, Did you if, hear the recent um, one or one of the early? I think maybe it was even number first ever revisionist history episode. Yeah, yeah. Where he's talking about um, the Birmingham Monument? No, not the Birmingham Monument. It's the different one where he's talking about the ah crap, crap I can't remember her name. The English artist who the the woman who yeah, uh, yeah. was inducted. You remember yeah. this? And he brought in the story of Princeton. Yep. And that famous now famous speech that Wood. that woman gave. Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. He he references how in the middle of this. Two men, two men, I think they were probably born in the 40s or 50s, if I'm remembering the story correctly, get up and say, start to have a discussion and an argument almost about what the plaque should read. Yeah. So right. they're basically like, no, 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 no. What, it's not even a question as to whether or not Woodrow Wilson, the, he, his name would go away. It's just like, well, we should have a small plaque. Yep. And then they immediately jump into let's discuss what should be on the plaque. Like that's, that's where the discussion is. And it's reminding me of that as we're talking about someone as prominent as Jefferson, where that I'm assuming is where a lot of minds will end up going. Well, okay, well, sure. Yeah, it was bad. He did some bad things, but let's just, you know, alter a little bit. Let's alter, alter it a little bit to be inclusive or to not make it un-American or whatever. What do you say to that? Yeah, I think so. So at first we talked about history, right? We talked about uh, whether or not statues are a good pedagogical tool for teaching history. I think we get into another altogether different conversation. We talk about heritage and how do we commemorate, celebrate um, the good, bad and the ugly of heritage. Um, And I think that's where you get bogged down in the weeds around plaques, around uh, is it a park? Is it an emancipation park? Is it is it founding fathers park? Uh, does Jefferson have a tree? Um, yeah. Right, those sorts of things. Um, yeah. Yeah. I I I am I am interested in a conversation <clears throat> where the declaration for, with for Jefferson in particular, where uh, the declaration Declaration of Independence, his relationship with. Uh, Monticello and his relationship with Sally Jennings and his relationship to other founding fathers are all in concert and in conversation. Mm. Um, uh, and as I hope to be remembered as a well-rounded, uh, incredibly flawed, uh, nuanced human being, 
uh, I would just ask the same for, uh, I, I would hope that Jefferson uh, would ask the same, right? Um, yeah, that makes this, sense. This idea that uh, they're sort of gods or semi-gods or, you know, it's just not helpful. And it, and it creates a mythology uh, that is frankly hard to live up to, right? If you memorialize something, you, you, you set that as the ideal but then I don't leave any space for error, right? So then mm-hmm. I'm to be, if I'm to be a good American, I can make no mistakes. And then if I do make those mistakes, I'm forced, I can't reconcile and I can't correct yeah. those mistakes. I can't say I'm wrong because this is the standard. The standard is that you're perfect and you made no mistakes. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that we get into trouble with when we say things like, America's the best country on the planet. Well, if you're the best country on the planet and you make a mistake, you can never admit that you've made a mistake because you're the best country on the planet. Yeah. So then you forced yourself with this rhetoric. You've backed yourself yeah. into a corner that you can never get out. And we all know we've made mistakes. But you, can't, you can never say, we lost the Vietnam War. We lost this. We didn't do this right. Mm-hmm. We did slavery. We can't say this because we're the best on the planet. Right? So it's a, it's a call to lament and humility. So let's shift gears a little bit because we're um, – I probably could talk to you about this all day, <laughs> honestly. But – uh, just maybe wrapping up a little bit to make this to personalize this a little bit. I know you've seen um, quite a bit of, like we said at the very beginning, both sides, the dark and the light of racism and redemption in the context of education, having been doing this for quite a while. Are there any stories of hope and redemption that you can share with us that illuminate? what we could all aspire to. Yeah. Well, I think, um, one of my biggest teachers is, is my wife. Um, and she, um, when I'm most frustrated with my wife, white brothers and sisters and want to mm-hmm. sort of, um, throw them away or, you know, write them off. She reminds me every day that there's at least one white person in my life who uh, won't let me do that. And she's just, incredibly loving and meets me where I'm at and uh, challenges when necessary, but, and learns and laments and does all the things uh, that give me hope and encouragement. Um, So I think it's important to to acknowledge her. Um, I think the other sort of zooming out to national trends, like when I look at uh, the speed at which LBGTQ issues and trans issues particularly have gained traction, especially with younger students, with my students, um, that gives me hope in terms of timing. There's, there's not this requisite 50-year mm-hmm. period for attitudes to change, right? Uh, when you look at trans folks' issues in particular, in an incredibly short amount of time, uh, there's a huge amount of goodwill, public goodwill, uh, to protect those folks. Um, so that's encouraging, right? When I look at the footage of uh, protesters and the, the violence, the unnecessary tragic violence and murder in Charlottesville, one of the things that's encouraging to me is that when you first look at the footage, it's really hard to see who's on what side because um, there are white people putting their bodies on the line for causes that affect me and that they affect everyone. Everyone, mm-hmm. but it's encouraging when you look at you know footage from the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s. It's clear where the lines are, right? You're yeah. like, oh, that that is happening, right? But one of the things in terms of um, hope and, and and actual progress is that you look at you know, what happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, and there, 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 there are white people who are putting their, their bodies in literal harm's way 
Uh, and that to me is an encouraging sign of solidarity mm-hmm. and, and allies who are, who are not just there in word, but also follow up in deed. And, and that to me is encouraging mm-hmm. uh, piece. So when you, when I look at my wife, my students, uh, what's happening nationally in Charlottesville, and then, you know, my little, little godson who is the cutest kid you'll ever meet. Um, but the love and deep affection, um, that we have for each other, mm-hmm. uh, is a sign that um, this whole construct of race is hogwash and that human souls are designed to, to connect with each other and we're designed to knit to each other. So it, it, uh, it does feel like when you just zoom out, can we all just agree how stupid racism is? Yeah. I mean, just like the fact that there is a slight chemical change slight DNA shift that brings about melatonin differences. And you're like, this, this is what we're, this is what, this is what we're segregating around. That's right. It's so dumb. Yeah. And I don't mean it to trivial. I don't mean to say that to trivialize the pain and suffering because it's a very real thing, but you just look at it and you're like, Oh my God, how, how are we, how are we doing this? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, last question for you. Yep. Yeah. What's one thing that you would encourage and exhort everybody to do after having heard this something practical if you can. Yeah. Um, I, I, I posted on my Facebook wall a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, my, my wife and I are trying just like everybody else wrestling, like what, what do you actually do about Charlottesville? Uh, and I wrote, you know, what can you do about Charlottesville? Uh, break bread, uh, with someone new. Sharing a meal not only insulates your soul from the gravitational pull of fear, but also initiates the transformation of the other uh, into family, right? Um, And Mm -hmm. it it sounds super simple and Mr. Rogers, but uh, time, spending time, logging the hours of time with somebody um, moves the needle uh, faster and in deeper ways than you could ever imagine. So... Uh, go eat some food. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Yeah. Man, that was great, Brad. Appreciate it.